I'm so excited because we've just arrived in Hampstead. By we, I mean me and Mr Binks. I should just clarify that Mr Binks isn't my boyfriend. He is my English toy terrier. And we're here to interview one of my heroes, the pre-eminent author and biologist, Dr Rupert Sheldrake. Now he's studied the psychic abilities of both animals and people, but in particular, dogs and their owners. I'm Anna Webb, and this is A Dog's Life. Oh, Rupert, thank you very much for this opportunity to sit in your wonderful library and, um, and have a one-on-one -on -one with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to see you again. Mm. <laughs> because what I love is your, your love of animals led you to study biology at Cambridge University. Mm. Um, and in that study, you actually... Uh, began to, re you realised really that the psychic realm, it belongs to the natural world, mm. not at all to the supernatural. Mm. Can you explain that and what the, the key attributes of psychic communication are, please? Well, people often treat the psychic realm as if it's supernatural, paranormal. Um, um, and I don't think it is. I think it's normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural. And when I got interested in this, I thought, well, if these phenomena like telepathy exist in the human realm, then it's not because we're special, it's because we're animals and that we'd expect to see these in other species. And as soon as I asked, thought about that and started thinking about my own experience with animals, dogs and cats and other animals, and asking friends and family members about their experiences, I realised these are very, very common. Lots of people have telepathic experiences with dogs and cats and other animals. Um, and um, it makes good evolutionary sense. I think that if animals can communicate with other members of their group at a distance, it's obviously very helpful. Um, so uh, the psychic realm really, uh, I mainly worked on telepathy. Um, the psychic realm includes also premonitions, and many animals show premonitions of earthquakes, yes. disasters, tsunamis, and many people with dogs uh, have find that they give premonitions of their epileptic seizures or other health problems. Um, uh, with telepathy, uh, it's something that occurs between members of social groups, normally between bonded, emotionally connected dogs with other dogs, like mother dogs and, and their daughters and sons, um, people and their animals, uh, people and other members of their family or close friends. So it's normally to do with emotional and social bonds. Um, what about communicating um, to animals beyond your initial social bonds? I think telepathy can work between people who don't know each other well when they're together. Where it happens mostly between people who don't know each other, uh, at a distance, with people who do know each other, it can happen at a distance. And um, There are some animal communicators who claim they can do this at a distance. Um, um, but I think this is much rarer than the ordinary kind of psychic bond or connection. Well, you know, when I read Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, it was a landmark moment for me, Rupert, because uh, for eight years prior to that, I'd lived with my first miniature bull terrier, Molly, and I'd had 
so many experiences that were a little bit odd that I couldn't really explain. We were having a two-way conversation. One was when we were lost on Dartmoor and as you know it gets very dark in Devon very quickly and uh, whether this was Molly tapping into her sense of direction which I know is another aspect of your work mm. but imagine we're in the mini she sat on my passenger seat and the sat the last thing the sat nav said was continue forwards for seven miles so we found ourselves in the middle of nowhere and it was very dark Molly begins to look at me and then look out of the window, look at me and look out of the window. So much so I exclaimed, I know, we're lost. Then she looks at me and looks out the back and I suddenly say, I know, we're gonna turn round. And we found a pub where I could use the landline and get in touch with where I was going, who came to collect us from this pub. Mm. That was really the first time I really thought something odd happened there. Well, I think, obviously, while you picked up your emotions, that you were worried and concerned and yes. didn't know what to do. And it may be that the sense of direction enabled her to know where the pub was, or at least that you shouldn't be going forward. But the sense of direction usually works in relation to homing or into familiar places. So right. I wouldn't have expected a very strong sense of direction, or at least not for pubs, or landlines, <laughs> <No. laughs> uh, but uh, might, she might have had a sense of direction for home and of course a lot of dogs that get lost away from home can find their way back so they do have a sense of direction, you know, not as well developed as homing pigeons but um, it seems to be part of animal nature. Well, yes, we all know Lassie Come Home by Eric Knight, you know, yes. and the film and so on. And, you know, you read in the papers often that there's a dog that was lost in Cumbria that made its way home to Hampstead. Yes. Um, you know, why is that? I know that's an area that you've uh, studied quite a bit. Well, it's, it's not totally unlike telepathy. In telepathy, there's a bond between the dog and the person. It's like a kind of invisible elastic band. Um, and that's why dogs can pick up their owner's intentions at a distance. It's why they can know when they're coming home. It's why they can know when they've had an accident or in distress, or even when they've died when they're far away. Um, and I think that animals have a similar invisible elastic band, a field that connects them to their home. So I think when you take a homing pigeon, 600 miles away, as racing pigeon enthusiasts do on a regular basis. Um, they release the birds, they circle around, and I think they feel a pull towards their homeward direction. And they just feel, this field gives a sense of direction, a pull. And um, I think that's, uh, dogs and cats have that too, which is why they can come home. The most remarkable of all these phenomena is when they can find people who've moved away from home. Coming home is one thing, you know, it's fairly common among animals. But there are cases where people leave the dog at home or their old home when they move away to take up a job 100, 200 miles away, they leave the dog behind. And in some of those cases, the dog can actually leave the home and find them. And they're not doing this by sniffing uh, their tracks. You know, if they were moved, went by car, then they'd have to sniff tracks along motorways and things. They wouldn't survive it, long. No, they, they wouldn't. And they can still do this even if people move by flying or taking a boat. 
they do it in another way. And I think it's, again, this invisible elastic band. And is that what you call morphic fields, Rupert? Yes, I would say that the, this invisible elastic band is, is a kind of metaphor for a connection that really exists. I think the bonds that exist are real, and they happen through fields. And fields are invisible interconnections. I mean, radio works on fields. It works sure. on electromagnetic fields, yeah. TV and mobile phones. They, uh, the gravitational field of the Earth is another kind of field, and that's invisible. Um, fields are invisible connections between things, um, which uh, are very much part of modern science. It's very interesting because as yet no one really has scientifically come to a, a conclusion about pigeons homing, for example. Mm. Um, and of course yours with morphic fields is one um, very real hypothesis for mm. it, which, which how do traditional scientists uh, take your views, Rupert? Well, it depends if you ask them at work or at home. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you ask them at work, then they, and if they think their colleagues are listening, then yeah. they, they have to pretend that they think that telepathic things are, you know, not very likely or, you know, rather controversial or something like that. If you ask them at home and they've got a dog that knows when they're coming home or picks up their thoughts or intentions or mm. if they know when their partner's on the phone to them, which most scientists do because they're normal people, um, then in private they're usually much more open to these things. But How at work they realise there's a taboo against them. The reason for the taboo is that um, science still works under the aegis of the materialist theory of nature. It's basically a philosophical theory of nature that says minds are nothing but the activity of brains, therefore they're confined to the insides of heads. Therefore thoughts and intentions can't possibly influence anything at a distance. Therefore, right. telepathy is impossible. Um, and the so-called skeptics, who are not real skeptics at all, they're really denialists. Um, there are a lot of denialists around in, in the scientific world who just say these things are just impossible, they're rubbish, nonsense. Uh, they don't give any arguments, they haven't got any arguments, they've just got denialism. Um, but there's a lot of that within science, which is a shame because it's such an unscientific attitude. Still today, you know, anthropomorphism gets, um, you know, gets thrown about as labelling for, um, for any of our feelings that we project onto animals. Well, yes, and, and it's anthropomorphism, the idea that there's something that we can actually learn or know something about animals from our own feelings is rejected in favour of mechanomorphism, the idea that animals are just machines. Mm. But I think that's a worse kind of projection because it projects our human obsession with machinery onto mm. all of nature and saying it's all just mechanical. Only humans make machines. Um, and so it's a very, very peculiarly human-centred obsession, this thing of machines. Indeed. Whereas anthropomorphism, saying that dogs have emotions like we do, that dogs can be afraid like we're afraid, dogs can be happy like we're happy, exactly. doesn't seem to me a ridiculous stretch of the imagination at all. It seems obvious, and I think it's obvious to most people who've kept dogs. And actually, even within science, um, in the last 10 or 15 years, it was hailed as a great breakthrough, the recognition that our thinking is influenced by emotions and that our minds are not just computers processing information, they're influenced by emotions. 
this is now hailed as a major scientific discovery. Emotional uh, intelligence. Yes, <laughs> yes, but I mean, most people who are not scientists have always known this. It's, it's obvious. Yes, yes, which segues nicely, actually. What's interesting about dog ownership at the moment, Rupert, is that it's at record levels since, you know, studies and... Um, statistics began and apparently you know a younger demographic is now taking on dog ownership whereas you know I know when I was 37 and I took on Molly I was weird you know what do you, Anna, you've got a dog well how are you going to manage your life with a dog we'll manage you know but now 38% um, of under 37 year olds do own a dog now do you think Rupert this could be some way of the younger generation reaching out for the power of the dog to help balance, you know, this smartphone culture that seems to be ruling our lives. Well, yes, that makes sense. I mean, I had, didn't actually know about those statistics. Um, they're quite, they're this year, actually. Yes. Mm. Yeah, Mintel. Yes. Well, <laughs> I think it's quite likely. I mean, that people lead much more isolated lives than they used to. Yeah. Partly, I mean, social media gave the sense of connection at a distance, but the immediate connection you get from a dog uh, is is my, I mean, it's obviously, it's immediate. It's present. It's not distant on a screen. Is no, no. I, I can easily see why that would be an appeal to a lot of people. Yes, yes. To balance, to be an antidote, yes. perhaps, to the extreme levels that you know we do seem to be going to now. Yes. But going back a little bit, you know, I'm a fan of terriers, and yes. um, in your work in dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Terriers scored quite highly as being quite uh, telepathic or intuitive. And there was one terrier in particular named JT, yes. who has played a major role in your work. Yes. Um, quickly, do, do explain a bit more about uh, little JT and what, what he did really prove. Well, when I got interested in telepathy and dogs in, in the early 1990s, um, it seemed to me that the most testable aspect of this was dogs that know when their owners are coming home. A lot of dogs know when their owners are going to go away on holiday or pick up their intentions. But when they're in the same house, the, it, there could always be clues through body language, smell, etc., yes. etc. But if the person's miles away and the dog picks up when they're going to come home, which many dogs do, um, you can't ascribe that to body language or smell or subtle cues. What about remembering the car? Because a lot of people I say this to, they go, but they, they know the engine. Well, yes, well, that's the point. You see, I, what I did was thought about this and thought, what are the obvious answers? They hear the car, they know the engine, familiar footsteps on the street, uh, familiar smells, familiar sounds, routine times, people at home giving dogs clues. So to rule that out, we did experiments. We did them mainly with this little terrier, JT, belonging to Pam Smart in Ramsbottom in Greater Manchester. And uh, the reason is that Pam volunteered to take part in these experiments and said her dog did this. And um, she was very helpful. And we set up tests. And we did lots, hundreds, actually. We filmed the place the dog waited. Right. Pam went at least five miles away. Um, she came home at a randomly chosen time, selected by me, by uh, randomization methods. So it told her through a pager. She didn't know in advance when she was coming home. Her parents at home, who she left JT with, didn't know when she was coming. And she came in taxis or um, on other in other unfamiliar vehicles to rule out familiar car sounds, 
car smells, etc. Right. And over and over again, on oh, we filmed the place that JP waited, and over and over again, uh, there's the dog on film going and waiting at the door when she decides to come home or is told to come home. Fascinating. And it started even before she got in the car because uh, the intention to come home precedes the car right. engine starting. I mean, you've got to think about it, ring for a taxi. And yeah. So it was the intention that the dog was pe picking up. And that's so important with telepathy. That's right. It's about intention. Um, so what we showed with these experiments, with JT and with other dogs, is that it's not just routine, familiar car sounds, etc. A lot of people whose dogs or cats do this assume it is. I mean, it's, they don't jump to the conclusion it must be telepathy. They, no. <laughs> they usually jump to the false conclusion that it's totally explicable in terms of normal sensory clues. Um, and only when you begin to do experiments or look at the thing in more detail do you find out this actually isn't true. It does seem to depend on telepathy. For example, with my cat, because I have a cat now, Rupert, mm. um, I never call his name to get him back home at night. I think it, which is always it's also mm. mentioned in Dogs That Know. Yes. And it was interesting, hundreds and hundreds of cat owners agree on this, yes. that actually it's far better to think, Gremlin, it's time for home now, come home. And within five minutes, um, he's through that cat flap. So, it, you know, it's not only dogs. No, no, not only dogs. Actually, Cats are, are rather better at that. Well, I mean, cats often have to be called because they roam off on their own. Yes. Dogs don't do that so much. So no. there's more opportunities for this telepathic calling with cats. And actually, you could do a very nice experiment with that, you see. You could set oh. up a camera. Right. Gremlin is the cat. Gremlin, no, yes. yes. You could set up a camera, uh, just a phone, leave a phone running. Mm. Um, you mm. could then, at a randomised time, better that someone else picks it and send you a text message or something. Okay. Call yes. Gremlin now. Yes. And we could do this together if you like. I could get yes. Pam who works for me. I could ask her to work with you on this. Oh I'd love to do this. Yes. Oh no, consider uh, it done. Good, all right. Well, well, well Gremlin would love to be part of an experiment on telepathy. I know that. He's uh, he's quite an extraordinary sentient being actually. Yes. Yes. So that's very exciting. Good. Well you see what would happen is that you'd then at a within a time frame when you're at home and yes. and, and gremlins out. Um, you'd get probably better in the summer than the winter, I suppose he's out less in the cold. Well yes, and yes he is actually, but um, he's less. He's out less than he was when he was a bit younger. He, yes. um, he used to be a bit of a boy about town. Well, Alright, well anyway we'll find a time when he's likely to be out and you're at home. Then you'd get a, a, a text message saying, you know, call gremlin now. Yeah. You could then say to the camera, I'm calling gremlin now. Yeah. And we'd then just see on film, does Gremlin come trotting in a few minutes later? <laughs> compared with random, uh, with control periods when you're not calling him. No, I think this would be fascinating and that could help, you know, cat owners enormously, you know. Oh, yes. Because I always feel going out in your garden with a, a tin of cat food and a fork and beating the drum is, is a little bit, you know, um, humiliating really for the person almost. It's yes. um, far more elegant to think telepathically. Yes, exactly. You know, after the tsunami in 2004, segueing a bit here, Rupert, what was interesting when I, I missed the tsunami by 24 hours, you know, I was actually in India at the time, because I mm, love yeah. going to India. Mm. Uh, it was obviously, you know, catastrophic. 
But interestingly, there weren't many animals found uh, once the, you know, the mm. tsunami had passed. And in quite a few articles that I read, no one could really explain that. Mm. Well, it's, it's, I think, similar to earthquakes. There are, there's a lot of evidence. I mean, going back literally thousands of years that animals give warnings of earthquakes, sometimes mm. several days in advance. Now the tsunami, I collected these reports from the great tsunami in, um, and all around the area of the, where, which was struck by the tsunami, India, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, yeah. um, animals were giving warnings, um, usually about half an hour to an hour in advance, not more than that. Right. With um, earthquakes it can be several days. Um, but here they seem to sense the danger long enough um, to get out of the way because yeah. many of them moved to higher ground and elephants, flamingos took off from nesting spots and moved to higher ground, the dogs moved to higher ground. All sorts of animals, wild and domesticated, did this. So um, nobody knows how they do this, but um, there's lots of evidence that animals can foresee disasters, not just earthquakes, not just tsunamis. During the Second World War, lots of British dogs and cats were giving warnings of uh, air raids before the sirens went off. They somehow anticipated these. Isn't that interesting? Yes, I've read about dogs hiding under the table. Yes. Um, and that would be the cue for everybody to quickly get organised and go to a bunker, you yes. know. Going back to India very quickly, Rupert, I mean, I had a bit of an extraordinary experience that um, it was again before I read your work. Picture this, I'm in a little boat in the Cochin Estuary in Kerala, and the purpose of being in that boat was to go and see some wild dolphins, and the driver explained to me, he was very upfront, that it was completely the wrong time of day, and the likelihood of seeing any dolphins was remarkably, was very slim. Yet I, I pressed on, it was my thing to do that day, you know, and mm. I really wanted to see some wild dolphins. So we'd been out for about an hour and there weren't any dolphins to be seen. And then it's the, you know, the bad news that we've got to turn around and head back in because it was getting dark. So there I am on the front seat of this tiny boat, feeling a bit down and disappointed. So I um, just think, Rupert, and this is before I read your work, I actually thought things like, I know you're there, please show yourself. It would be very special for me to experience this. Then all of a sudden, this huge dolphin that was bigger than the boat did one of those amazing arch dolphin leaps that mm. you see, you know, on films in mm. front of this tiny little boat. And the driver just ex exclaimed, you know, and cut the engine immediately so we're floating. Then two more dolphins come over. One comes right to my side of the boat and I touch it. I mm. literally touch it. I'm actually feeling that they're asking me to get in. I was tempted just to get in the water, but though I did think better of that. And then there's another one just circling us, just being happy, just doing its little dives. And my friend Louise, who's a photographer, was in the back and she's a great photographer and she had all her kit with her and she forgot to take a photograph because she was so stunned as well. Mm. We were so believing we wouldn't see any dolphins. Then the one that did the big arch came right up, right in front of the boat. And I'm really feeling like I'm really staring eye to eye with this amazing creature that looked a bit battered, I've got to say, not like Flipper. He looked like he'd, you know, lived. And I just thanked him and I'm staring into this really small, dark, beady eye. And then he just went down into the water and they swam off. 
Well, I mean, I think it may well be that they were responding to your call. I mean, um, normally animals respond, as we were saying earlier, to people they know well. In this case, they didn't know you well. They'd not met you before. <laughs> Some nutter but, from London. <laughs> but there are, I mean, there are people who do, who can relate to wild animals. I mean, if you were living in a tribal society, you'd probably be a shaman rather than a broadcaster. <laughs> <laughs> in the Amazon. Yes. If you're living in Amazon, you see your vocation would be quite different. Probably, I mean, shamans are the people in societies who act as the intermediates between the human and the non-human world, mm. between humans and the natural world, particularly animals. Um, yes. And they're specialists in communicating with animals. And shamans in traditional societies use this skill to know, know where animals are. If it's a hunting society, they know where animals are. They right. know when there's danger from animals and so on. And they obviously can reach out and connect with animals. Um, no, well, so I, I wish. I mean, it's very flattering you know, of you to have said that. But latent <laughs> skills. Well, if the bottom drops out of broadcasting, <laughs> <I'll> <laughs> move, well, maybe we'll go and live in the Amazon if there's any left yeah. by then. Yeah. So, do you, do you feel okay? So, perhaps just to wrap up now. Here's a question for you. You know the expression "divine intervention." Yes. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, it can just be an expression. Yes. Um, you know, it raises a, a lot of questions. I mean, if you think there's no such thing as the divine, then it can only be a metaphor. If you think there is such a thing as the divine, then one of the roles the divine has is intervening. Um, I mean, if the divine never intervened, it would be irrelevant. Um, so um, I think that the idea of an interactive relationship between us and other forms of consciousness is the way things are. And I think that the what we've been talking about mainly is our interactions with non-human forms of consciousness in the form of animals, principally yes. dogs. Uh, but I think there are more than human forms of consciousness. And in my recent book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, I discuss how it, there are many spiritual practices that can actually bring us into contact with higher forms of consciousness. Um, meditation is one, prayer is another, um, uh, singing and chanting is another. But the first cha uh, second chapter in Ways to Go Beyond is called Learning from Animals, uh, yes. because I think they're one of the ways that actually can point us beyond ourselves and even beyond animals, because one of the things about mystical experiences and going beyond is being in the present. and. Humans have a terrible problem about being in the present because our minds, chattering chatter, minds. Chatter, the monkey, the monkey the talking. The monkey minds. Mm. Scientifically, the regions of the brain involved in that are called the default mode network. Right. It's a region of brain regions that link up together that underlie this internal dialogue, anxiety, worries, the monkey mind, the chattering mind. Yes. And one of the points of meditation is to come into the present yep. and let go of the chatter. And animals certainly do remind us. That's right. Yeah. Animals don't have chattering minds, at least not as much as us. I mean, <laughs> most of them are not uh, worrying endlessly. I mean, dogs left at home all day might be worrying about when their owner's coming back or sure. if they're coming back. Yes. But um, left to their own devices, most animals don't. I mean, most dogs, when 
like your dog right What's now. He doing there's nothing then? much going on. Just go down, lie so down, so go to sleep. Yes, he's very comfy. Rather than worry. No, um, that's it. So dogs and cats and other animals have the ability to be in the, fully in the present. Yes. And when a cat's purring sitting on your lap, that's wonderful. it's just in the present. Yes. And by getting into that, by tuning into the cat, they can help us come into the present. So I think they can actually play a spiritual role in our lives as well as an emotional and psychic role. Um, yes. And that's why I think that animals can lead us, uh, not just beyond our own personality, but even beyond the animal level to a, a, a spiritual dimension. Yes, and feeling a bit humble, because I think the human condition is it's quite big about itself, isn't it, really? Um, perhaps, uh, you know, not rightly so. And I think, you know, to watch birds flying, listening to birds singing in the garden, it's a humbling effect. And I think that's good for everybody to be reminded that there are things greater than the human. Yes, I think that's one reason that so many people keep dogs and cats. Yes. I mean, at one level, they're a nuisance. They, they, yes. they cost a lot. They're, they're a bind. They tie you down. They're expensive when you have to go to the vet and so on. And, <laughs> I know. And there is a nuisance when you're going away on holiday. There are many, many inconveniences about them. But there must be something about their presence. There is something about their presence which compensates for all that, which is this sense of connection. And I think also the way they do help to open us up to dimensions beyond us and beyond them. Yes. So thank goodness um, for animal magic. Mm. Thank you, Rupert. This has been so kind of you to spare your time and um, I, I've really enjoyed um, seeing you again. Very good to see you again. So that's our show, Mr Binks. What did you think? Yes, Rupert was amazing. And what he said about morphic fields, well, it's just extraordinary. Thank you also for listening. I hope you found it fun and enlightening. If you did, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. And while you're there, go on, give us a five-star review. It'll help other dog lovers find us. Thank you also to Mike Hansen, Cookie and Sophie Bradley for all of your help. And thank you, Mr. Binks, for being, well, just you. What's that? Oh, yes. There'll be another episode of A Dog's Life coming very soon. Why not subscribe now so you'll never miss a show? Bye for now. A Dog's Life is a Pod People production. Pod People.